Hey everyone, I'm Ashley Asti, and this is I'm Curious Podcast. In today's episode, I got to speak with Sanave Spoonhunter, who is the director of the documentary film Crow Country, Our Right to Food Sovereignty. Sanave is a Native American reporter and filmmaker whose storytelling centers around Indian country. The documentary is a 20-minute film that explores one tribe's struggle to retain food security. And as Sanave will talk about in the interview, this is not just about being a food desert where they don't have access to healthy food. She calls this food oppression, food apartheid, this is systemic food racism, she says. The film covers or explores uh, people on the Crow Indian Reservation, which is the largest reservation in Montana, crossing over 2 million acres of land, with about 8,000 Crow tribal members living there. The Crow tribe has been faced with some harsh economic realities, which has only heightened this food insecurity. If you visit the Crow Country doc website, you can find a synopsis of of the film, and I'm going to read a little bit from it. It says, In 2017, the Crow Agency laid off 1,000 of its 1,300 employees due to federal government cutbacks, ultimately straining tribal operations and leaving many families struggling to make ends meet. In 2019, the only grocery store on the entire reservation burnt down and the owners are not planning to rebuild. For the Crow, the federal and tribal governments are both failing its people. The Crow tribe, like most tribes, have been reliant on federal, tribal, and nonprofit food distribution centers. As a result, tribal nations across the country are exploring the idea of food sovereignty, the inherent right of a community to identify its own food systems. Returning to traditional nutritious foods have been shown to be an effective way to restore native food systems and create employment. But restrictions on ancestral hunting grounds are preventing tribal members from providing for themselves and their families. Crow Country tells the story of three tribal members, a journalist, an elder, and a hunter. The film will show how resilient the Crow people continue to be despite the hardships that they face. I want to point out that this situation is not unique to the Crow people. The United States government over decades has systematically oppressed many Native peoples and Native communities, leading to erasure and uh, making this really not just a food issue, but a justice issue, an issue of our humanity. Crow Country, Our Right to Food Sovereignty was Sanave's documentary thesis while she was studying at the Graduate School of Journalism at UC Berkeley. I'm grateful that she's willing to share this with us today, a story that is underrepresented and undertold to many outside reservations, borders, and it's long overdue time to bring it to light. So let's jump in. Recording now officially, all right? (laughs) (laughs) I am so honored to have you with me today, Sanavi. I I got to see your film, Crow Country, Our Right to Food Sovereignty, uh, and I feel like you're just uh, sort of like helping me at the tip of the iceberg open to something that I'm, I'm not fully aware of and that I, I should be. 
But before, we're going to get into your work and your film, but as I often like to do in these podcasts, I like to start by rewinding and taking it back to the beginning, uh, and I guess your beginnings. So you, you grew up in Owens Valley in Central California, and what I believe is called the Land of Flowing Water. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Tell me about your childhood. What was it like growing up there? Yeah, so um, like you mentioned, I grew up in um, Paihunaru in the Owens Valley. That's the name that the Numu, the people who live there, um, referred to that area as. Um, I grew up on a reservation, the Big Pine Paiute Reservation in Central California. Um, so, you know, growing up on a reservation just across the board is pretty similar with other um, larger reservations. So yeah, growing up with culture and, you know, part of the tribe is something um, not many people are familiar with in the greater United States. And so um, I feel very fortunate and lucky to have had that experience in my life. And because I, I, I don't know. So when you grow up on a reservation, what does schooling look like? Are you going off the reservation to a public school or is there schooling taking place on the reservation? Yes. Yeah, so my specific um, reservation, I went to a public school off the reservation. The reservation, it's in a little tiny town and it borders, you know, there's the Big Pine town and then there's the Big Pine Paiute Reservation. So it just borders that town. So um, like I said, it was small. So I went to public schooling off the reservation. Um, however, that's not, it's typical. It's not too typical when you look at reservations like the one I filmed on in Crow. Um, you know, they have their own Bureau of Indian Affairs or Bureau of Education. And so they go through the federal government for a lot of like, you know, their um, education and things like that. Yeah, that's uh, interesting. So, you know, you grew up in a reservation and I believe you're a descendant of the, and you can correct me if I'm saying this wrong, the Northern Paiute, is that correct? Yeah. And, and Lakota and Northern Arapaho nations. Mm -hmm. How has that history within you shaped your desire to be a storyteller? Yeah, you know, I... I I like to say, given, you know, my ancestry, um, that, you know, Native people are, and I think just in, it's human nature, right, to be storytellers and to tell stories. But especially among Native American people here in the U.S. is, you know, our, our storytelling is predominantly oral. Um, you know, we get a lot of our stories, for example, our creation stories are passed down orally. Um, there are some efforts now to, you know, try to preserve that knowledge and preserve those stories through, you know, audio, oral recordings, um, but also write, writing them down. So I think that that's something that I try to honor in my work and something that I want to evolve in terms of, you know, covering Indigenous issues and, and especially in film, like capturing that beauty and just the rich culture of these communities um, is something that I'd like to kind of progress in in our communities mm, yeah i appreciate that focus and that leads me into what i want to mention next which is talking about representation so uh, i follow you on twitter <laughs> and i saw that you had recently t retweeted a message from indigenously and and the message or the tweet was less than one half of one percent that's how many native journalists are writing your indigenous headlines in today's newsroom if at all this may be 
an obvious question, but just to underline it, why does having more Native voices in storytelling and journalism matter? Yeah, you know, that's a lot of people have their own opinions on these, but speaking from or this question in, in particular, which is a good question, um, speaking from my experience and, you know, having mentors in the industry who are also Indigenous, um, it matters, representation matters, because when you try to tell these stories, a lot of times you're working with editors or um, people in your newsroom who aren't aware. And so it, when you, as a Native American journalist, for example, want to go in and research a little bit more and dig dip deeper into these issues, they're so new and almost foreign to your general newsroom. And so they try to very much um, just give baseline or like just give like an overview of these very, very complex issues. Um, and so you don't have that support. And just in general, just having um, a representation, like somebody who, you know, is like-minded like you going and covering stories that you're passionate about is really, really important. And so just being able to have that space and to have that support to tell stories in a way that you feel um, is representative is, is so important. And, and like I said, when you have representation and editorial staff, you know, really fostering that, it just makes for like so much better coverage because, you know, when you look at like past examples um, of people just like parachuting and you always hear that, you know, in the journalism world, like people just parachuting and telling stories and leaving or, you know, just that kind of style of um, it's traditional news, newsroom style. Right. And so, um, sorry, I don't know where I'm going with that, but I hope I answered something and I don't want to cut no, too No, I, I actually really appreciated the parachuting idea. I feel like uh, myself as, as someone who's a storyteller, I always struggle with that and want to make sure that I'm, like, that's the thing that's always a concern for me, that I want to make sure I'm not just like diving in, taking almost like stealing someone's story and then moving on. Um, and, and what you were talking about with the newsrooms and, and having representation and, and creating more depth uh, and authenticity in the story. And there's an African proverb, something like, until the lion tells his side of the story, the tale of the hunt will always glorify the hunter. Mm -hmm. um, and, and we need all shades. Um, so yes, I, I appreciate your answer. Sort of going ahead in your timeline. Uh, so, you know, you grow up, you go to college, uh, you eventually made your way to UC Berkeley Graduate School of Journalism. And your documentary thesis, which I mentioned before, Crow Country, A Right to Food Sovereignty, which I've gotten to see, um, it follows several tribal members from the Crow tribe of Montana and explores how they're navigating through food apartheid. So my first question is, where did the vision or the spark for this film come from? Meaning, why did you choose this topic? And second, what is food apartheid? So, um... The first part of the question is that what inspired the film Crow Country, Our Right to Food Sovereignty was basically a court case of a Crow tribal member. His name's Clavin Herrera. He, um, without giving too, too much away and just going, in, I feel like sometimes I just go down this whole rabbit hole. <laughs> but, um, so um, he, you know, he's a hunter. He's a subsistence hunter. He hunts for his family. And just jurisdictional issues are very complex and really hard to navigate when you're a tribal member on tribal lands. 
And not only that, but when your tribe back in the 1800s had an agreement with the U.S. government to be, to you know, they make an agreement to go on a reservation, but given that agreement, they also have the right to hunt in their traditional homelands. So that was that treaty, it's called a treaty, right? This um, government kind of agreement with tribes. And so he exercised his treaty rights, what, you know, what that phrase is referred to as exercising your treaty rights, like being able to honor those treaties. Um, he did that by going into Wyoming, his traditional hunting grounds, because like, like you said, in, the crow live in Montana. So he went to Wyoming, um, shot bull elk, and brought it back to feed his three daughters. And um, he was cited and fined. And his, his whole argument was that, you know, he, as a tribal member, he was able to do that, right? Because of that mm -hmm. treaty that was made with the U.S. government. And so anyway, that case, um, I was following that case for a long time. Um, it went all the way up to the Supreme Court back in 2019. And so that was something that I wanted to um, pursue for my thesis film at UC Berkeley. Um, and so when I did that, I reached out to him. He, like Carrera was like on board with being involved in the film. And then I did a little bit more reporting and found out about the food apartheid happening on the Crow Reservation, which is, you know, when you look at the numbers and the statistics surrounding it, it's pretty, it's pretty staggering. And so, when you talk about food apartheid, a lot of people refer to it as a food desert. Um, so, you know, like there, there are like grocery stores, but there's no variety of good, nutritious, healthy food. But when you look at food apartheid, it's more of like a, it's not as negative as food desert, uh, food apartheid. When you look at that, it's kind of like a systematic oppression of communities to access food. And that's what you see when you go into um, Crow country is that, you know, the, what I wrote in my press kit too is that both tribal government and the U.S. government are failing to provide this community with just basic rights to food. And um, so I hope that answers your question. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we're, I want to get more into this, but I think it's interesting what you're talking about, um, Clavin Herrera exercising his treaty rights, because essentially, isn't this all like indigenous land that's been colonized? I mean, there was so much displacement and massacring that happened in like the 19th century. So I mean, I don't, I don't know if you have anything to say about that, but. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I'm, you know, that's right. Like this, um, this land was originally occupied by more than, you know, the 500 tribes that are recognized by the government today. So, yeah, it is our homeland. Unfortunately, after the Indian Relocation um, Act, they relocated Native Americans to um, reservations. And that land base of res reservations is approximately 5% of the entire United States. And so, you know, when you look at it in that context, it's not a lot of land, you know, and so um, just to be able to, like I said, exercise your treaty rights and for the government to honor those treaties is not a lot to ask. I want to talk to you about, you had mentioned, well, the federal government and tribal government sort of failing in some ways to provide healthy food that people deserve to have access to. And you talk about in the film that uh, many people on the Crow Reservation are food insecure, and it opens with um, Peggy White, well-known buffalo, and it, at one point she's talking and she says, hunger is a pain I, I felt a lot of times in my lifetime when I was growing up. 
And she adds, we're under federal law. They're supposed to keep us good and healthy, and they're not. When she says we're under federal law and they're, they're supposed to keep us healthy, can you explain that more or expand on it? Yeah, so um, tribes that are under federal law are tribes that are recognized by the federal government. And so presently, there are 574 tribes that are recognized that the federal government says, yes, you are a tribe, and yes, you are a sovereign nation. Um, but, you know, there are more tribes out there that, you know, are trying to gain federal recognition, but aren't getting that recognition. And so, so when you have federal recognition, you're recognized as a sovereign nation. So you're able to operate as your own governmental entity, right? Mm-hmm. And... Um, but it gets a little bit more um, muddy when you go, like, when you really, really look at it. Because when, you know, the Crow, they made that agreement, like I said, in the 1800s with the treaty with the United States government. Not only did they allow for tribal members to hunt outside of the reservation in their traditional hunting grounds, but it also, you know, um, there are clauses in there that provide for education, uh, food, and certain um responsibilities that the tribe has to these nations because they took away so much land. Mm. And this is, you know, we don't have to go into this if you don't want to, but I'm just curious. It's a sovereign nation, but are the people in these sovereign nations subject to federal law? That's, yes. So that's, that's a kind <laughs> of like, that's, it's a little bit more um, tricky and hard to navigate because there are, there are tribes that are, that work directly with the state there are tribes that work directly with the federal government. Um, And so you have all of these different levels of like jurisdictional issues. And that's where you get the missing and murdered indigenous women too, right? Yes. Um, So, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I've I've always been curious about that. So I appreciate you you taking the time to answer. Um, Why, uh, on the Crow Reservation, it sounds like there's high unemployment. Is there a particular reason for that? Yeah, um, from my research, and you know, like I, like I said, I can't, I don't know how well I can speak to this, but I know that the tribe, the Crow tribe, is you know heavily reliant on the coal industry. Um, that's their main source of revenue on the reservation. That's you know their economic, their employment. That's where a lot of tribal members get their employment. And and when, like I said the federal government has a trust responsibility to help and provide education and like food services and different things like that to the tribe. But when you have federal government cutbacks um, and a government, not necessarily a U.S. government, not necessarily recognizing tribal government, um, then, you know, that, that money isn't getting funded to these tribes. And so the tribes struggle with trying to provide education to their community with federal government cutbacks. And that's what you see in the film with what the Yellow Mule family. Um, mm-hmm. There's a scene in there with Juanita Yellow Mule who worked for the tribal government. Um, but when federal government cutbacks happened on this reservation, she lost her job. And not only that, but she lost 11 months of work that she put in for the tribe. She wasn't getting paid. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's just, there's a lot, it's really hard to kind of like, I hope I'm explaining this. Um, you know, in a way that <laughs> it's understandable. Yeah, you're doing great. And and absolutely, people will have to watch the film as well. Uh, we want to plug that too. But yeah, no, thank you. Um, one of the things I found of, of many that I found interesting about the film is that like, it seems like the only grocery store in at least the area or the residence like, was burned down. 
And then Luella Bryan, who you also feature in the film, she said, we live in a food desert here. Grocery stores are miles and miles away. A lot of people here don't have vehicles, so they're depending on catching rides. And at one point in the film, you show her shopping at a grocery store. It's nighttime. By the time she finishes, it's 9 p.m. And she's saying out now after a long day, she has to get home and cook dinner. And she says she has to drive back 25 miles from the grocery store. And I remember when she, I first heard her in the film say like, oh, they're miles away. I thought, oh, a few miles. But 25 miles, is that common? Is that just in order to access, like you had mentioned earlier, uh, healthy food? Or is that just really any grocery store? Yeah, actually, um, it's to access a grocery store. So there are several um, there are several several gas stations on the reservation that have, you know, they have your typical gas station foods, um, you know, canned foods, um, soft drinks, you know, chips, those types of foods. There also is I, I should add that there is one restaurant on the reservation, but yes. In the film, you see the only grocery store on the reservation burnt down and the owner is not going to rebuild. So when tribal members try to get their food, they have limited options, right? Because unemployment is high and because a lot of people like Luella in the film mentions don't have vehicles, you know, they, they don't have a lot of options. And so, you know, when you look at the rates, the diabetes rates on reservations, when you look at all these numbers that, you know, are, are, like I said before, pretty staggering, you know why, right? They don't have access to anything. The government's not providing them a grocery, there's no grocery stores investing on reservations. Um, There's no options like for tribal members, right? And so the only, the nearest grocery store, like Luala said, for her is 25 miles away from her home. And that's pretty typical. It's norm, like about 15 minutes, anywhere from 15 minutes to over an hour to get access to grocery stores. That I can't, yeah, so go ahead. <laughs> oh yeah, no, <laughs> that have produce, right? And so, and you know, a lot of like, like in Wyoming, they don't have state tax. So some tribal members actually go into Wyoming to do their grocery shopping, but then also they factor in mileage too. And some tribal members, they go into Billings because it's cheaper. When you go to, you know, these border town grocery stores, the prices are a lot higher. So they, they have an option to travel to Billings, which is like an hour away from the reservation, depending on where you are. But then you're making up for that savings in gas money. And so um, not very many options, like I said. Yeah, I'm just thinking about like where I live in a suburb in New York on Long Island. And like, if you just go a five minute radius from where I live, I could name like a bunch of different grocery store options. Uh, so it's, it's just almost unimaginable that this is how we're allowing people to live or, or not providing the support and nourishment that they need. And, and I'm glad you mentioned the rates of diabetes because this has consequences not just on on hunger, which of course is important, but on health and well-being. And and I feel like it can have crippling generational effects after generation after generation doesn't have access to healthy food. And so for me, it's like leaving people who are already at the margins, whether it's native peoples in this case, or or people of color, or people in poverty, to sort of sink at the margins. Meaning the impacts of of food policy or whatever specifically is going on here, they fall around, fall along both racial and racist lines. Do you want to touch on that at all? 
Oh, yeah. You know, just like like when you describe the food apartheid, right? It's the systemic oppression, right? That's not allowing for communities of people to have access to certain things. And I'm glad that you pointed out like in urban areas in the United States, like New York. And when I was living in Berkeley, it's like two blocks away, there were like two different grocery stores, mm-hmm. like two and two blocks from each other. Right. And it's just like, how, like, how is it that we're not investing in these other communities, right? And it's just kind of mind-boggling. It's like, what, like, what in the world? Like, what is going on here? And, and you do have to, and it does cross your mind. Like, this is like, like I said, it's a, a systemic. It's it's race. It's racism, right? It's mm-hmm. food racism, and not only you know that they're not like the government isn't providing for this community, but on top of that they're not even allowed to exercise their traditional hunting grounds or their traditional gathering places, right? That's where Clavin, that's where that Clavin case comes into it too, because it's like, you know, he, he would rather go out and go hunting, right? And get his food for his family, but he can't even do that because of jurisdictional issues. And, you know, like a lot of people use, you know, choke cherries. I mean, I went through the archives on the reservation, the Little Bighorn College, And they even had recipes of, you know, different berries and different things that traditionally crow people, that was their traditional diet. And um, now, you know, it's hard, like, they don't have access to to those spaces. I just want to underscore that you've mentioned a few times that this is systemic, like this is not an accident that just didn't just happen by happenstance. Um, and, And that it's rooted in a, in a history of, this is not even strong enough, we're neglect, uh, you know, Mm -hmm. from the beginning of when European settlers came here to the Trail of Tears and Andrew Jackson and all these other things that I don't even, I unfortunately don't even know and couldn't even name um, beyond that. Like, this is not an accident. Same thing, like we're seeing Black Lives Matters movement in this country rising now. This is is nothing new. It's a different form. We're just seeing it perhaps look different, but uh, it's a history of racism that has been with us since the beginning. Yeah. Yeah, sorry, just really quick too. On that note, I'm glad that you brought that up because this is why it's so important to look deep in when you're covering these communities is that, you know, there's just the history of erasure, right? We're not in history books. Our history isn't there. Many people don't even know what what tribal group they're living on, right? The land that they're living on. It's because it's erasure. Um, It's intentional. And so, yeah, I'm just glad that you, you, you brought that up. I'm glad that you mentioned the word erasure. I think that's a powerful symbol or image of of what's happened. And you've talked about how restrictions on hunting grounds that are like traditional native lands, how because people can't hunt on them anymore. And it's sort of a detachment from a traditional diet and a traditional lifestyle and erasure of of who um, these communities are, how they've lived. Do you find that not just with food and with hunting rights, but is that something that's happening across the board with culture uh, in Native communities? Um, Yeah, I'm glad that you brought the cultural aspect um, up because, you know, like you, yeah, we can look at the numbers and like dwell on the numbers and things like that. But then on the flip side of that, you have the beauty and just the, you know, just the culture of these communities, which is like, so so beautiful it's just so rich and a lot of people don't know that you know traditionally um 
crow people relied on elk for everything. You know, it was not only for nutrition, but it also clothed them. It wasn't only for nutrition, but it was also to clothe themselves. Um, and so their traditional attire encompasses a lot of the elk. For example, like the elk like hide, you know, the elk teeth that are that are um, decorated on women's attire. And so it was, it's all intertwined, you know, in the culture. And you can correct me if I'm wrong here, but you're talking about how they used all parts of the elk for all sorts of reasons beyond food. And I feel like that represents more of a sacred connection to the animals and the land in a way that when we slaughter animals today in like the general food like agricultural industry or I don't even know the word it's it's like so brutal because it's it's not like that at all there's no sacred connection yeah right um with you know the crows even with a hunter prince three irons that you see in the film um you know there's just a deep respect for even not only the animal but the mountains right mm -hmm. he talks about having to respect the mountain itself um, that's how he was taught, you know, and, and, and respecting the animals. So it's, it, it's it, you know, when you look at it, it's respecting um, all living things, right? Mm. Um, you know, the plants are living, right? So it's respecting that and respecting the power that those living things have to sustain us and to keep us alive, right? And mm. so it's a, it's a super deep connection. Yeah, I and I love the respect. I feel like it's it's a great word to describe it, and just this beautiful like oneness. And again, I I don't know. I didn't grow up in this, but that's just my what it looks like from the outside. I I wanted to talk about actually another interview you had given. Um, I believe it was with KUNR. You talk about in your work wanting to show Native people as modern people dealing with real modern problems, and you said. We are not this romanticized idea that people have primed in their minds from the film industry in Hollywood. We are real people with real current issues and we are resilient people because a lot of these issues stem from things that happened, what the government did in the 1800s, putting us on reservations and how we have continued to survive and thrive. And when I, when I read that, I'm, I thought of a quote that I think is attributed to Ben Franklin, and I hate that I'm quoting him because I don't know that he's the person we should look to when it comes to issues of justice, but if they are his words, they do resonate in some way. Um, and it's, justice will not be served until those who are unaffected are as outraged as those who are. By telling these stories and, and the work you do in film and the, the films that you will continue to put out, uh, and by telling these stories particularly to people like me, I got to see it who are outside the reservation and outside Native communities. What do you hope for? I don't want to say what do you hope to will be accomplished. I think that's too pointed a word. But what do you hope will come of that, of, of this storytelling that you're doing? Yeah, I think that, um, you know, a, a mentor of mine who I work with at Indigenously, she she puts it in a good in a good frame that the United States clearly is in need of a re-education of its history um, and the truth, right? Because a lot of the events that you see in the textbooks and things like that, they're inaccurate and just blatantly lie about what happened, right? And don't include, you know, the, the through timeline of this country. Um, and so I think that that's something that I hope I can accomplish with documentary filmmaking throughout my career is to just be able to 
educate and inform the greater population of what's happening uh, on tribal communities and to tribal people because of what we've been talking about, the systemic racism and this systemic, yeah, like, like we've talked about too, just the erasure, right, of these communities. And so that's something that I want to do by way of film is to, um, you know, just educate and inform people and hopefully, you know, give them a little bit more of an idea of these issues and not only the issues, but like I said in the, the quote before, just the beauty of these communities and the resiliency, right? So. Yeah, I, I like that you call it, you refer to the beauty and the resiliency. Are you hopeful? Um, like what, what gives you hope? Does anything give you hope for the future? Yeah, I think the coming generations, the coming Native American generation, I think gives me a lot of hope. Um, like you see with, you know, the rates of education among Native populations is changing. Um, a lot more people are getting educated and, and you know, not, not your typical standard traditional education, but like educating themselves and their history and their culture and learning the knowledge that nobody else but them will probably have, right? because they're doing the work they're putting that work in and it's just like really beautiful to see i mean i follow a lot of people in my community back in california but also i'm an enrolled member at northern arapaho tribe and i just see you know just this like i said this next generation really rising to the occasion of you know no longer living in in this systemic like we've been talking about oppression but wanting to change it right and so i think that that's what gives me hope yeah, people used to ask me about this in my own justice work, and I, I used to often quote Martin Luther King Jr., how he talks about the moral arc is long, but it bends towards justice. And so that's why I was hopeful. But I think you're pointing out something that's even more important, because it's not just that the moral arc bends towards justice, it, it requires help getting there. Like people actually have to do something, and as you said, rise to the occasion. And so I'm glad to hear that you, you, you see that there's hope in this youngest generation in, in moving the needle and, and really putting the work in to create that change, and including yourself, of course, um, as a storyteller. You, uh, I was looking at your UC Berkeley bio, and it says on there about you, she hopes to make the film industry a more inclusive space for groups of people who have been historically underrepresented, which I think, you know, after this conversation, uh, uh, people can see that. As we come sort of to a close here, do you have any final words um, about either inclusion or belonging or anything you want to share that I haven't asked that you think is important? No, not, not necessarily. I mean, you know, like I, like I mentioned before, uh, we were seen in less than half percent of film. And if we are seen in film, it's typically, you know, those stereotypical images that you, um, that Hollywood produced back, back in the day. Right. Mm -hmm. And so, um, yeah, I just, I just want, to say that, you know, I hope that that number changes too and that, you know, films will be able to show Native people accurately, so. Yeah, it matters. And it matters also for, I feel like, the little kids who are growing up and don't see themselves in these representations just as much as it matters for people outside of it who get to see people of all ways of being and, and know that everyone belongs. Um, how can we either follow your work or watch the film? 
If you go to crowcountrydoc.com, um, you can see current screenings. I haven't um, updated it yet. I'm still waiting on a few um, film festival submissions. So once that hopefully goes through, uh, there'll be another screening soon. But if you follow Facebook, the Facebook page, Crow Country Doc, we also did a community screening that's posted there. Oh, awesome, thank you. And do you want to, is there anything you want to talk about that you have in the works or, or coming up? Oh, um, yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I've shared this before, I think, in another interview, but um, I'm currently working on another documentary um, with a tribe based in Wisconsin. So that will be my next piece, hopefully, in the next couple of years. Oh. That's, I, I look forward to that. I, I want to say again that I'm, I'm so grateful that you've taken the time to share with me. And again, I, I, I feel like we've only been able to touch the surface. And I am grateful that you've been willing to put up with sort of my questions from a place of not knowing and, and just learning from you. And I, I hope I can continue to, to dive into this journey and, and make sure that my knowledge is, is fuller and that we all can. So thank you for sort of getting so many of us who will get to listen to this started um because we got to start somewhere uh i appreciate you sanavi yeah thank you ashley thank you for you know taking the time to um you know learn and i think that that's important so thank you for that and thank you for the time that you've given me here today <laughs>